is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Welcome, everybody, to episode 28, which means 27 have preceded this. Uh, episode 28 is, as we will uh, talk about in a moment, it is for those about to shock, we salute you. See what we did there? Well, rather, you see what Steve did there. Um, so this is the Enter Sad Men podcast i am joined by the aforementioned steve and richard as always good evening gentlemen hello hello mate you're right yeah yeah i think so i think so never better than when we're doing this i have to say um so uh, how have you been getting on this this week it's been uh, it was a tough start for reasons we'll come on to but um how's it panned out yeah again i've thoroughly enjoyed it you know and uh one album i knew pretty well an album i knew reasonably well and an album i didn't know at all but i've enjoyed all three well absolutely if you if you forget the backstory which you'll come to in a minute the bottom line is we wound up with three really good albums point yeah. full stop period good week <laughs> so the backstory is we decided we were going to choose three albums that in some way shocked the world that ended up on the pr radar and not necessarily for the right reasons although I think all of them demonstrate that any publicity is good publicity. So we all kind of went away, did a load of research, looked at the Filthy 15, scoured Google for tales of misdemeanors and infamy, couldn't find anything, and chose three albums we quite like that might be a little bit controversial. So that's what we've done. Um, <laughs> so I ended up with Ramstein, who uh, East German band, who ended up in prison on the road in America after releasing the Dairy album. Um, Richard, you ended up with? Well, I, I ended up with our old friends, Judas Priest, the Stained Class album, which in 1990 or so ended them up in court after the uh, dual suicide of a couple of uh, American teenagers allegedly influenced by subliminal messages in one of the tracks. Something brilliantly undermined by the late, great Bill Hicks comedian of course and i'm sure we'll come on to that uh so steve which of your favorite albums did you choose and <laughs> you got it mate. you absolutely got it it's pathetic isn't it i mean how much yeah. how much infamy and notoriety is there in the world of heavy metal and we found that with three albums we like <laughs> it is pathetic anyway I've, I've i've erred towards um gang warfare and i've stretched it quite a long way but it's um suicidal tendencies how will i laugh tomorrow when i can't even spar today so when we uh, get in a moment, we'll have a quick listen to uh, snippets of all of those three albums. But I think um, for my part, I would just say, I think one of the reasons why I struggled so much is because they weren't, nothing was particularly shocking. So, so it was all kind of very rock and roll. And you kind of look at it, you go, well, that's no different to any other band. So how do we kind of, anyway. Yeah. So anyway, let's have a listen. I tell you what, Mark, maybe that just says more about us than it does about the world of rock and roll. We're just so dangerous and so risque that all of this is just, you know, running the wheel. <laughs> Although, as we will come on to, I was left slightly slack-jawed over the English translations of some of Ramstein's chat. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, well, let's come on to that. Let's come on to that. What translation you've got? I, I think the other, the other reason, of course, is is that it it is getting to the stage now. With we've got so many albums now in the Hall of Fame, we're going to be increasingly challenged in finding albums that we think have got a 
half decent shot because yes we could have chosen various tracks from the filthy 15 or or ones that have really really hacked off the pmrc but when again you looked at the album as a whole i i looked at a few and thought well yeah i could choose that for that one track or that one reason but as a whole album i'm not sure if it's going to get past raven so uh, i think that was another factor in uh, in our choices let's have a brief listen to the three that did make it past the sensors eyes uh, and uh, feast our ears on nine snippets from three albums Always, we do this in uh, chronological order. I hope you enjoyed uh, that brief burst of noise in your ears. Um, we do it in chronological order, which means that we have one from three consecutive decades, actually, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. We're starting in 1978. Judas Priest's Stained Class, Richard's Choice. Take it away. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, so this was their fourth uh, studio album. It was released in uh, February 1978 on Columbia. And, I mean, it's widely regarded as the, you know, a, a real game changer, not only for them, but but for heavy metal. But we'll, um, we'll come on to that, I'm sure, later. Uh, it was uh, yeah, recorded uh, late in 77, October to November, produced by, mostly by uh, Dennis McKay with the band, Although James Guthrie uh, recorded separately uh, the uh, notorious track uh, that we will be talking about at some length later. So most of the album was recorded in Chipping Norton Studios in Oxfordshire. And then they recorded uh, Better By You, Better Than Me in uh, Utopia Studios in London. Right, Judas Priest at this time were Rob Halford, KK Downing, Glenn Tipton, 
Ian Hill on bass. Uh, they, but then they were joined by Les Binks on drums. And uh, I, my goodness, he made a bit of a difference. Again, we'll talk a bit about that uh, later. So after using various session musicians on previous albums, they got a proper band drummer in uh, for this one. In terms of charts and sales, uh, it got to number 27 in the UK charts, uh, stayed on the charts for five weeks, uh, and uh, reached the lofty heights in the US of 173 on the Billboard uh, 200. But it did eventually uh, reach gold status in the US. I would imagine it reached gold status after 1990, and just a little bit of the publicity uh, that happened as a result of said court case. It's got nine tracks, five on side one and four on side two. Um, and the side one tracks are as follows. Exciter, White Heat, Red Hot, Better By You, Better Than Me, Stained Class and Invader. Um, so we'll start listening to those in a minute. But opening views, gents, I don't know how well you knew this album. Uh, not that well at all actually. And I would imagine, yeah, like you, I, I would imagine it's one of those albums that is probably held with greater affection now than it probably was back in 78. But interestingly, when you listen to it back, what you do realise, it's, it's, it's um, we keep using ahead of its time, of its time, before its time. This was kind of ahead of its time. This kind of seemed like a cocktail of speed metal, thrash metal, new wave of British heavy metal, before any of those three genres had actually been um, invented. But always kind of um, doffing their hat back to stuff like they were doing on the Sad Wings of Destiny and plenty of 70s feel about some of the stuff they're doing. They're just taking it, they were just energising that little bit more. Yeah, so released the same month as Van Halen's debut album. And I think, you know, for, for a variety of reasons, these were the two albums that would become massively influential for very many reasons. Yeah, it's, it's a really, really good album. I really enjoyed it. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, ditto, really. It gives you a bit of an insight. There's a... As Steve just said, we talked about Sad Wind's Destiny back in June, July, didn't we? And um, here we are talking about the third uh, album that we've dealt with in the podcast. Um, and in each of them, you, you, if you take British Steel as the point at which they went, they achieved liftoff. Um, Sad Wind's Destiny, 1975, three relatively short years before this, but my God, a world away from the sound they developed, not only... You know, was it harder? Although we'll talk about the production, I'm sure, because that, that I think is an issue on this album. Mm. But um, it's also the, the, of course, the first album that features the now iconic Judas Priest logo, um, rather than the sign of the Gothic script that mm. had adorned their previous releases. So, yeah, everything was changing for Priest at this point, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, it's fascinating. I don't know if you did this, but but I, I, I took a listen of you know Sag Wins of Destiny and Sin, Sin After Sin, and then this, and, and then Killing Machine. And as you say, that they are preparing for that liftoff. You can you can hear the sound maturing, um, and uh, it, and and the the way that they're they're playing as musicians, the phrasing, it's all just starting to build up, isn't it? So it's it's fascinating to see that you hear that evolution take place. Right, so stained glass kicks off with Exciter. Uh, Les Binks, as uh, new in the studio, he recorded first and he opens the album with some absolutely cracking drumming fills and double bass work. And, uh, yeah, I mean, as Steve says earlier, I mean, it, it, Exciter, it, it's, is this where thrash metal was invented? 
Well, I, I, that kind of opening drum salvo, you're immediately transported a year further ahead, and Motorhead's overkill, aren't you? Mm, yeah, and the and the other thing that was, and I'm possibly putting you on the spot here, Richard, but. How many other drummers did play double bass drums in 1978? I mean, that was fairly innovative in itself, wasn't it? Or there weren't many, I wouldn't have thought. No, not at all. No, and and um, I mean, not. I'm trying to think. Certainly, certainly that that that's a, the, that thundering, you know, the thundering role on them um, to, to, that became a you know a bedrock of of, of a song. Usually they're used for fills and occasional short bits and pieces, but this yeah, intense, constant pummeling. Um, yeah, I, very rare. Yeah. I think what this also kind of highlighted for me is um, it, Rob Halford still hadn't found his own particular style. The voice was obviously there, but he, he spends a lot of this album in a quite uncomfortably close to not quite making some notes, doesn't he? And um, and he brings it all back down um, over, certainly over Killing Machine and and um, British Steel, and then onward, yeah, he, he gets into a groove. Yeah. But this is still a bit experimental, isn't it, for him? Yeah, I mean, he, spend, as you say, he spends the whole album at the top of his range, doesn't he? Um, I mean, you, you do, uh, listening to Killing Machine, all of that, he's, 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 he's an exact opposite. Um, I mean, it's and then obviously we know what uh, we know what it's like in in British Steel, um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, he certainly gave it everything, but um, it it's, it's one thing for the, the whole album that makes it not quite as enjoyable as it could have been. I think. Yeah, I mean, I've written down here. It, it's difficult to listen to, and it's that's a recurring theme through the album. Hmm. I also wonder quite how how gimmicky it felt because I mean there was I read a piece with KK Downing saying that towards the back end of this when he does his standby for Exciter and pulls it up it's about repeats it four or five times doesn't it and it goes up and up and up and up and he was challenged live to keep going you know just to get as higher and higher and higher and higher and he just think you know are they taking the piss out of us or are we really enjoying this quite as much as we should I don't know um but yeah no it's um it's it's a bit of a challenge listening to Powerful, especially when you know, you know, I mean, the, the yardstick for me for any Judas Priest album is British Steel because it's the best thing they ever did. And um, we're not there yet, are we? We're certainly not at British yeah. Steel yet in, in terms of Halford's vocals. But interesting when you talk about, you know, him spending, him spending most of the album at the top of his range, the one track where he doesn't, of course, is Better By You, Better Than Me, mm. which by Guthrie, who then takes over production for Killing Machine. And you you wonder, don't you, how much of an influence he had on Halford's style. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But what I would say about Exciter is that it's a hell of a it's a it's a great track, and you can see why it opened up the live tour and mm. they played it live for you know the next sort of five, ten years or whatever. It's it's it must have been a a great track to, you know, just open up a gig with it's just you know it's just thrashing metal at its best well they talked about their punk influence didn't they and i think it comes through on on this album because i mean they they, punk was really exploding at the time in the uk and rather than uh, well i think they they just thought well fair enough um we can do some of that 
Um, and you know, because there's, there's a real pace to this opening track. No. Mm. Yeah. Moving on. Yep. Okay. Three, two, one, go. So excited gives away to track two: white heat, red hot. Uh, again, really lovely opening feels from Les Binks. I think his drumming's superb on this album, and then it settles into a really lovely groove. This is this is classic Priest, isn't it? This is you, know, you, you suddenly you you get a glimpse behind the curtain at what's coming down the pipe. I mm. think, um, and it's it's also I think, given that we hadn't yet got to the new wave of British heavy metal, this is this really gives you a clue about where the genre is going as well. Mm. Yeah, sorry, sorry, gone. You sure? I was, I was going to say, um, the other interesting thing about this, of course, is that you were wondering, um, producer Dennis Mackay, because he was best known for his work, wasn't he, in sort of jazz and jazz fusion and things like that. And you kind of, you wondered how that kind of combination would work with Priest and what sort of influence it'd have on them. And here it is, you know, in a track like this, because it is, it's almost, you know, heavy funky, isn't it? It's, it's, that's mm. the kind of groove he got, he got out of the band and it's, um, it's a very 70s feel. Um, I don't know what you think of Mackay as a producer, but I, I just think it's really interesting what a good sound he got out of them. Mm. Well, I think I, I, in terms of the production, and Richard, you, I'd be interested in your view on this, but interesting that you mentioned Van Halen's debut at the start of, of, of this, um, because I think Van Halen shows you what was possible in production technology and production outcomes this to me feels quite tinny and thin but is that just because i don't have the ear for it no i think i think it's quite it's quite a light sound it's very well defined very yeah it's it's brilliantly balanced in terms of being able to hear all the you know the 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 instruments and the separation between them yeah but overall it lacks some body uh and You know, I don't know with because he's he'd worked with uh, I think Bowie hadn't he and Supertramp and 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 and, and, it, um, and, and those kinds of uh, that that kind of music would want this sort of a, a more sort of you know balanced a bit of an airy feel to it. So I think I mean that's his that's sort of, that's his production sound. Uh, and um, again, I, if you think of Judas Priest's own sound, again it, it was. You know, it, it's 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 getting there, but yeah, I think I mean, it, Killing Machine is is another is another step on, and this could have been a an even heavier album had it had uh, that that bigger production on it. Agreed. Okay, move on. Yeah. All right, three, two, one, go. So on to track three then of Stained Class, and it is the infamous Better By You, Better Than Me, which was included quite late on in the album um, to lift it away, ironically, from a dark place. <laughs> um, and uh, it was suggested they did yeah, this this uh, cover of a Spooky Tooth song. Um 
and uh, yeah, it was added uh, late on. Um, I mean, let's talk about the song first, I guess, before what happened to it. But I mean, I mean you can actually hear a different production sound on this. So yeah, so you start yeah, you know, what James Guthrie get? There's there's more punch to the drums, uh, to to the you know just that more attack on the guitars. Um, and I, I I love this song as as a song. It, yeah, it's got the it, it in the middle. It's got the trademark Halford echo. Um, the the structure's really good. The breaks are nice. Um, so as, as a song, it's uh, I mean, and a, and a track three. Um, yeah, if I was listening to this album for the first time, very, still very happy with this. Yeah, I, I I listen to this and I think this is an example of where Halford is driving the song forward. Um, whereas he, it feels like he's being dragged along by his hair. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It feels like he's a passenger for a lot of it, but this, he's, he owns this song and it's the highlight of the album for me. Um, I think it's a really, really solid priest song. And I say that in the full knowledge that it's not a priest song. Steve? Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't excite me in the same way you, you guys get it. I must admit, I, I found it all a little bit average. I can get a little bit of the rage in that pre-chorus. I'm just feeling, I'm just hearing it in Halford's voice, um, which I like. Again, nice groovy feel to it, definitely of an age. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's okay. I just thought it's, it's quite. I just thought to me it was quite odd that you know all this fuss and nonsense over a track that elevated them to status way beyond what the music did and it's actually one of the more average tracks off the album but, yeah and, 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 and the yeah. one that they didn't write themselves so it's <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah i mean it, look i don't know if we need to uh dwell too much on the on the court case uh our listeners i'm sure know about it and can uh see it and hear it and read about it uh on in plenty of different places i'm um, so rob halford still to this day remembers it incredibly well and walking up the steps of the courtroom um, and being in what was a, you know incredibly surreal situation. I don't know if either of you have listened to Better By You, Better Than Me Backwards. There are actually recordings of it played backwards on YouTube, so you can invent whatever uh, backward-masked lyrics you want to at that time. Um, but yeah, so yeah, uh, played by two teenagers. Uh, they then subsequently killed themselves, and priests were accused of subliminal backwards masking messages, including the words "Do it, do it," um, which Rob Halford explained was just him exhaling backwards. <laughs> yes, they, they said it was a combination of a guitar phase and an ex- expiration, didn't they? Yeah. Didn't they? And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just. Nonsense, absolute nonsense. It is. So much it was. You, you, you feel very sorry for everyone involved. It, 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 interestingly, Halford played as if to prove the point. He played Exciter in reverse, didn't he, during the during proceedings, which evidently said, "I asked for a peppermint. I asked for her to get one," as if to prove <laughs> that you could listen to, you can deduce anything in anything yeah. if you play it backwards. Um, I found the whole thing reading up on it, as if kind of no one actually wanted to be there. Everyone was put there by their briefs and the money and the state and the, and the, 
And it was almost like heavy metal was on trial. It all felt really awkward and ungainly. And the nicest quote I found was from Rob Halford when he said, um, I really wanted to go over to the mother of the boy who killed himself and give her a hug and say, I'm sorry for the loss of your kid. Let's go and have a coffee and talk this over. And, and that was kind of where they were, you know. That's what he wanted to do. And he just – there were no winners in this case, whatever the outcome was. There were no winners in this case. It should never have happened. It was utter horseshit. Um, and just too many, too many vested interests, and it was, um, and it's left a real sad stain on the lives of an awful lot of people. None more so, of course. Yeah. Two mums who lost their, who lost their kids, and uh, for very many more complex reasons than listening to track three on stained glass. Yeah, uh, totally agree. Totally agree. Talking of stained glass. Yes, so track three, the title track. Um, again, the pieces of Judas Priest are starting to fall together, aren't they? I mean, on this one, the, the, again, the chugging riff, the dual guitars. Um, I felt almost a bit of a Black Sabbath uh, piece in the middle. Um, and one thing we haven't mentioned too much so far is I mean, another really good solo. I, I think the, the solos on this album were really starting to come together from uh, both... Tipton and Downey. Yeah, and we've mentioned we've mentioned the old the, the old double bass drum and the, the kind of relative novelty of that. So let's do the twin guitar thing, Rich, as well. Because I mean, how many bands were doing that? I thought of Kiss and I thought of Thin Lizzy, and I can't think of too many more who, by '78, were kind of you know real disciples of it in the same extent that Priest were. Because it, it made yeah. a difference to the sound, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, they weren't mad. Certainly, they were making it into an art form. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, got got a bit of a gallop going on as well, hasn't it? Yeah, I, I wonder wonder who might have been a little bit inspired by that. Yeah, S. Harry of yeah. Essex. <laughs> yes, exactly. And isn't, um, it, isn't it interesting that Rob Halford, when the track starts to gallop, he starts to gallop as well. So, for example, lethal, deadly, hung, drawn, and quartered, he slaughtered and faltered and altered the world, but by doing so, smashed all his hopes and utopian dreams. Breathe. Or, wielding the axe comes the one culmination that's always seemed certain to bring down the curtain on Bree. You know what I mean? I mean, for, that's, you know, rapid fire. It's, it's, it's what he did. Yeah. And he was very, very good at it. Yeah. Okay. Fucking all will set on it. <laughs> it is, yes. <laughs> yeah, there it, are. It, it, I think it, it's it's the one thing that spoils this song for me. <laughs> See, it's such a brilliant song, but at times I have to, to close my eyes and wince. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think we all do. <laughs> okay, ready? Three, two, one. And so uh, side one concludes with track five, which is Invader. Um, uh, yeah, some interesting sounds at the start of this, uh, you know, some synthesizer-generated stuff. I'm presuming they tried to uh, make it sound like a spaceship was landing. <laughs> I, I think what they did was they took the beginning of Silver Machine and just bunged it on the beginning of this. <laughs> but eventually it gets going. But again, I, th I think this is a good example of the production. That the um, it's a really good riff on dual guitars, but it's quieter than the Hawkwind spaceship. 
Yeah. Uh, that probably explains why it's a track you'd want to tap your foot to rather than bang your head to. I mean, it's a, it's a great rhythm and it's a great feel, but it's just not it's not big enough, is it? Hmm. If you'd spent the first four tracks of this album wondering what decade it was, this tells you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although, <laughs> interestingly, the, the chorus of this sounds a bit like a song called Invaders by a band called Iron Maiden. <laughs> <laughs> really, really similar. So you're stopping to listen now, aren't you? Yeah. I've got nothing else to say, really, on that one. No, I like, it. I, I, I like it a lot. I think the end's a bit limp and it gets a bit monotonous and it just about finishes in time not to um, not to start getting docked marks in my book. But, uh, yeah, that's no, fine. It's fine. Yeah. So let's flip Stained Class over, uh, start side two, and the track Saints in Hell. Which, until very recently, had never been played live. But Jesus Christ, more Halford screeching to hit the note. I, I found I found it really hard to get past his vocal on this. Yeah, really, really hard listen. Which, which is a real shame because again, um, fantastic riff, but it's just far too low in the mix. So the the rhythm, particularly, and there's a break in the middle. It's almost sort of metal gods. So again, you're getting all of those sort of priest elements, but yeah, I agree with you, Mark, on this. It, it's he, he really is stretching beyond uh, vocals, wise, isn't he? Yeah, and when he's doing that, I'm afraid a track that lasts five and a half minutes seems like it lasts a hell of a lot longer, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the low point of the album for me. So on to track two, side two of Stained Class, and that is Savage again. Starts off with some classic uh, Rob Halford wailing, but then it turns all deep purple. Yes, yes, yes. It's even got Gillan's phrasing on the lyrics on the other. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's good. Yeah. It's good. He can be quite Gillan-esque with his singing, of course, can't he? So it's um, yeah, no, it's yeah. Un- uncannily purplish. No, like this. Yeah, like this a lot. But again, we talk about production. This has got such a fantastic heavy groove, but it's lost in the mix. Alfred's voice and the drums are, are to the fore, and the, the two guitars and the bass are so in the background, and it's such a shame because it's a fantastic riff they're all playing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like you're hearing it through cling film, mm. you could tell. Good song, though. Now, Savage gives way to the slow song on this album. Well, not slow for too long. Um, uh, Beyond the Realms of Death. Nice start, melodic and quiet, and Rob's a little restrained for a while. What do you think of this one? I, I, I like this. I like this song. When it gets riffier, it's it's very northern, isn't it? But as a mandatory, slower-paced song that gives the album a bit of breathing space, I think they do it really well. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's it's a it's a strong piece of work, certainly. Um, just going back to the the reasons why we chose the album in the first place, and of course that court case in 1990 and the impact of the song "Better by You, Better Than Me" and all of that. Um, it's really interesting, isn't it? That the one song there is one song on this album which prompted Judas Priest fans to take their own lives very tragically, and it's not this one, which is the one that's about suicide, about taking your own life, yeah. which is bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. But, um, you know, 
uh, about coming out of some sort of coma. Go figure. But, you know, as I say, that just underlines the point of what a nonsense that whole thing was. Yeah, I really like this song. I think it's really nice. I even like the – tell you why I like it. I, I like it, especially towards the back end, because it when it goes through its um, kind of Y&T forever-esque solo, which, um, you know, in fact, this is – this becomes a Y&T song as it goes on. Mm-hmm. Y&T would have done it better. That's all. And so we come to the end of the album track four on side two is Heroes End. Starts off with some big chords and again, uh, some really, really good drumming underpinning it. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a solid finish for me. Not a lot more to say than that. Good hooky chorus. But yeah, probably not as... Uh, complex in terms of arrangement and interesting as some of the other tracks on the album. I, I still find it hard to get past his voice. Mm. It's it's just, every time you kind of settle into it, it's gone off, at, you know, a, a high tangent. The angle of attack is too steep for me, really. See, I, I actually think this is this is better than good. I think this this could almost be magnificent, but it's almost ruined by that it's almost over-theatric, isn't it? It's almost like a cabaret, and it washes away what's a really, really... I think this is a really good track. really like it, but um, it also kind of loses its way a bit in the middle as well. I'm loving that riff. I just don't need that... I, I, I don't need to lose that riff in my head by the voice, you know? I agree. That, and I think you can, you, you can level that at quite a lot of this album. Mm. If it had just been dialed back a little bit, you'd have ended up with something quite colossal. That brings us on nicely to highs and lows then, gents. Mark? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I indicated during the, the conversation we just had kind of where those lay for me. Um, the, the low for me is Saints in Hell. I think it's a really poor uh, opening to side two, and I think it's also the weakest part of the album generally. Better by You would be my high, but, you know, it's a, the whole album's kind of hovering around that. Okay, Steve? Yeah, funnily enough, Better By You is the one I've got as my least favourite. Just, just, just doesn't bother me at all, particularly. And, uh, yeah, Invader. I, I like Invader an awful lot. For me, I, it's probably between Invader and Saints in Hell, um, in terms of the, the, the weaker tracks. And uh, I think, overall, Exciter is still the exciting track for me on this album. Uh, it really, really is just kicks it off brilliantly. There we go. There's the first of our, for those about to shock albums, Stained Glass and Judas Priest. And so we move effortlessly from the 70s into the 80s and the second album of this evening, and that is Suicidal Tendencies, How Will I Laugh Tomorrow? Steve. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, it's uh, it's a mouthful and it's a uh, it's a great album. Lo- loved it at the time, still love it now. Um, so the reason why it's on the show, well, this, my friends, is a story of uh, gang culture in Venice Beach, California, and I fancy, as someone who grew up in the Badlands, that are Charles and Peter and Jared's Cross, I'm pretty eminently qualified to talk about gang culture. And this is 1980, um, their third album the third different label they'd been on. Um, This time it was Epic, and it was their first album as a five-piece with the addition of a rhythm guitarist by the name of Mike Clark. And it was, as a little footnote, it was the last album before 
future Metallica bassist Robert Trujillo joins. Is he Trujillo? 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 We, we've had this conversation many times, and I think we've agreed we don't know. Okay, that's fine. Well, Robert Trujillo um, joined after this, so he wasn't on this one. This is Bob Heathcote. Yeah, as I say, their third album, produced by Mark Dodson, and I dare say... Rich will, with some entitlement, run an absolute coach and horses through the production of this thing. But all I know is that I love it to bits because I've got it on vinyl and for what it was. But it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's questionably produced, certainly. But a great album, as I say, nonetheless. Ten tracks. If you've got it on CD or on Spotify, you'll think there's eleven, but there aren't. There were ten on the vinyl. The one that isn't on the vinyl is Psychomania. Or psycho, psy psycho, mate. Oh, fuck those. Something mania, and that's not on the um, and that's not on the original, which is a ten tracker, five on five on side one, five on side two, um, lasts the best part of forty five minutes. And the band makeup is Mike Muir on vocals in speech marks, um, and we'll come to that in a minute. Rocky George on lead guitar, Mike Clark, as I say, on rhythm guitar was the new arrival. Um, Bob Herrera on drums and Bob Heathcote on bass. Recorded at Cherokee Studios in Hollywood, got into the Billboard 200, didn't break the top 100. And, yeah, I absolutely love it. I loved it at the time, even though I knew they were a classic California punk band. By the time we got to this, they'd kind of parked a lot of that. And I think we've got a pretty decent pretty decent thrash record. You boys agree? Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, it's, it's certainly we'll, – we'll come to it. I can hear – yeah, you know, lots of thrash influences in it. There are still a few tracks, aren't there, that have got a, a, a good punk element though to it as well. Yeah, a lot of energy. Yeah, a bit, a bit, a bit different. I've, I've enjoyed listening to it. Yeah, I've enjoyed it very much, uh, which surprised me because I had also had this album on vinyl when it first came out. I think I got it uh, as a freebie um, from the record company while I was masquerading as the newspaper's music critic. And I remembered it. I remember being sort of somewhat taken with the title track at the time, not really understanding it uh, and then abandoning it quite quickly afterwards. I think what um, what I've enjoyed this week is um, is listening to about 12 different bands in, in one album. There are so many tones of other bands that were around around the same time, which is probably indicative of the sound at the time as much as anything else. But we'll come on to it. There are bits of Exodus, you can hear bits of Anthrax, bits of Disneyland After Dark. There's all sorts of stuff going on in it. So it's been a really interesting listen. Yeah, really enjoyed it. I've got a bit of The Shadows as well, but more of that later. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's been good fun. It's been good fun. And um, <clears throat> as I say, the, the, the reasons for picking it, it's pretty spurious, but they were basically a gang set up to, they were set up as a sort of Latino, Afro-American band to counter all the sort of Nazi gangs that were going around um, their neighbourhood in California. They were in trouble. The FBI did call on them, um, called on Muir after he wrote a song called I Shot the Devil, which is originally called I Shot Reagan. And they questioned him about whether he actually shot Reagan or was going to shoot Reagan. He probably said no, but I think he was on the list from then on. And yeah, they've had videos banned. They got banned in states. They were banned from playing in LA, their home their hometown, for four years, um, just because their concerts were just an absolute welter of unimaginable violence. <laughs> it just fucking kicked off left, right, and centre every time they played. Um, record stores wouldn't stop them. Some towns, therefore, wouldn't let them play. 
Um, so yeah, I, you know, I mean, you can big it up as much as you want, but they were controversial enough to get to get um, to get on this bill, I think. So as I say, five tracks on each side, um, and side one starts with well, we're off at a really ferocious pace. This is called "Trip at the Brain." It's the track that got me into this because, well, it's it's just a, it's a classic opener, um, superb riff. I'm not I'm 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 not in a punk vein. I'm straight into the, the world of thrash metal here, and I'm, and I'm loving every minute of this. Big up to um, Bob Heathcote on the bass, who had been their sound engineer in '84, um, and took to that superbly as a bass player. Um, and already you're sensing that this is enormously different from um, from their first two albums, um, if for no other reason than it lasts about four minutes thirty seconds which therefore makes it a hell of a lot longer than just about every track they've written before. I, I think it's a, I think it's a fantastic start. It's absolutely relentless, isn't it? I mean, it's, a, it's got a great riff. Un- unfortunately, I'm minded to transport myself back to episode six and um, caught in a mosh because I think they are guilty. If they're guilty of one thing, it's reusing the same riff all the way through. Um, and I, I, I tire of it towards the end of the album. But as an as an opening statement, yeah, completely relentless. There's a huge amount of, I can hear Exodus in this. You know, this is fabulous disaster era Exodus. He's got a very similar voice in this to Gary Holt, but it's varied. And I think there's quite, funny enough, quite a lot of light and shade in it. So no, I, I really like this track. Yeah, no, I get that. I get all of that. Rich? Yeah, good start. I got Anthrax because um, it's, uh, it's produced by Mark Dodson, isn't it? Loads of energy, like the riff. Yeah, Muir, Muir's vocals again, quite low in the mix, quite understated. I hadn't heard this album. Put this on this track. I was thinking, what? Well, yep, liking this, liking this a lot. Good. What are you going to like the next one too? Which is hearing voices. Straight in with the uh, the twin guitars being used for the first time, as I say, by Suicidal Tendencies. They had been a four-piece, now a five, and those twin guitars very evident from the off um, in this one. This is another grinding number where, and here's my first comparison, Mike Muir sounds uncannily like Udo. At the beginning. Yeah. And then he sounds a lot like Jess or Jesper Binson from DAD. Mm, okay. But he doesn't no, sound like Mike Muir should sound like as I'm looking at the bloke on the album cover. No, no, that's certainly true. That's certainly true. It's, as they say in Wales, very tidy, isn't it? <laughs> I, I love this song, actually, I have to say. Yeah. I, I've written down here, this is this is DAD on crystal meth. I like it. Really? I like it. Yeah, co-written by the, um, co-written by the band's original bass player, Luis Mayorga, before he was sacked for being told he was a shit bass player. By Mike Muir. <laughs> I sued. He sued. He sued for royalties. But there you go. All part of the all part of the uh, the intrigue of the band. Yeah, I think hearing voices is a song of two halves for me. The riff under the verses I absolutely love. It's really crunching and was a bit megadethy. The chorus I can't get on with. It doesn't fit. <laughs> In what way? Just it, it sounds like a sing along. And it just so it just feels like it's sort of been been put there. I, I, see, I call that variety. I call that a sort of juxtaposition to the rest of the song. Well, so when it got to the chorus, I I just I, I wanted I was waiting until the verse began again. I'll forgive them anything for this riff. 
<laughs> and so we continue to name check bands and I'll come up with Twisted Sister for this one, if only for the um, for the anthemic chants that uh, accompany Pledge Your Allegiance. This is this is proper gangland chanting now. Um, what Twisted Sister do so well and quite anthrax as well. In fact, all the choral work on this album is a looks to the sort of stuff that they do. This is this is a great song again. Um, really good riff. Yeah, again, power in the track. Proper heavy. I just think it's a really really enjoyable listen. I, I'm not a huge fan of this one. I have to say, lyrically, there's quite a lot going on. I kind of get the the lyrical content. I think it's quite a yeah. You expect me to be this, but actually I'm that, and I can't do anything about it. And I don't. And therefore, it doesn't matter what you think. I can't identify with all of that. I mean, it has grown on me a bit over the week, but I don't know, it's just, I'm going to criticise them for being different and there's nothing wrong with being different. I'm just not sure that this is the track that showcases the variety that they're capable of. There's a point where it goes a bit Pearl Jam as well, which was just a bit of an odd kind of departure in my ears. Nothing wrong with, you know, nothing wrong with Pearl Jam per se, but just I wasn't expecting to hear it here. Mm. Yeah. I think it's about about the point that we've reached in the vocally. I'm talking about now. I think it's it's, it's not far off where we've reached the song now. Uh, yeah, I think this. I think the song's okay. What I found a little bit frustrating about this song was actually Muir's singing was a bit more intense. Um, I, well, disturbing. I don't know, but, but it had a bit more purpose to it, and they buried it in the mix. And I think it would have been far better um, uh, higher up and, and to the fore. So, yeah, some good bits. I, I like the, the the riffs, again, uh, are fantastic. The, the ST chanting, fine. Yeah, it's of a type, isn't it? It's what they did. It's what they do. You can imagine the crowd kicking off. It's oh, a yeah. great, great yeah. chanting for the fans, isn't it? Those that aren't beating the shit out of each other. It must be, um, yeah, proper crowd participation. Very weighty. This is the heaviest, not the fastest by any stretch, but this is as heavy as they get in terms of weight. Drags you down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And track four is the title track, How Will I Laugh Tomorrow, etc., etc. Again, a nice, bit like the other one, a bit bit like Pleasure Allegiance, there's a nice kind of dark vibe to it. But this is where, if Muir's voice just beginning to bother me up to now, this just, he almost ruins this bloody song. Um, it's just too weak, too, too weak. And I'm looking at the big fucker on the album cover and I'm thinking, you you shouldn't be singing like that. You're singing like Vera Lynn. You look like fucking Arnie. <laughs> um, it's not a great moment, is it? I mean, and not only that, but I think I think the song exposes his lack of vocal ability. You're right, it does. It, it almost, Well, it does ruin it. You know, there's no, it almost does, it does. I, I think I'm right in saying, just double-checking. Yeah, it's the album's low point. Yeah, Richard? I think it's a shame because I, I really, really like the structure of this song. So this isn't my low point because actually the, there are other parts that have really lifted this up. I mean, I, I love the the riff and the solo, how it opens. Uh, I like the variety throughout the song. And then, you know, after a while, it then just goes. And yeah. it's, it, it's, yeah. it's fantastic. Uh, yeah, I get your point. Shame about his voice. Um, yeah. Yeah. But actually, when the riff really kicks in, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, 
No, I get that. And Rocky, Rocky George's guitar playing on this album is absolutely outstanding. I mean, and, and when it goes through that really thrashy middle section, he's um, he's absolutely on fire. He's the bloke who's pulled this away from um, from where they were, and uh, he's the star of this album, Rocky George. Um, and side one closes with The Miracle, which I like this song a lot. It's a really fantastically kind of messy opening um, where all the band's members are getting involved. And then... Um, you kind of think it's going nowhere, and then a kind of minute in, the tempo changes, and and bang, Mark will tell you we're off at exactly the same riff. But it's 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 another thrash avenue they go down. Um, it's it's actually a bit quite minimalist. I quite like it. I have a massive issue with this track because they have completely misspelled the title of it. Um, they've spelt it M I R A C L E, and I spell it. Don't tread on me. <laughs> uh, and what I've written down here is, A, I hear this done, I've heard this style, this approach done quite relatively recently by bands like Five Finger Death Punch. And I think they do it really, really well, but we're 30 years on and they, of course they would. But I also heard this being done better than this by Metallica before 1988 and I think that's the problem with this track for me is that it's I find it quite derivative this is this is Metallica to me this is this is this is Justice this is this is Blackened yeah this is Creator to me I thought they moved into Creator territory with this (laughs) part of this but that's what I like you know God how much do you want to have a band in one track Jesus they can swing fantastic (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you're, getting money for money. you're not getting 10 tracks mate you're getting about 30 yeah. <laughs> I, I've not marked it low I just it's, I find it that there's all sorts of different reference points going on and I'm not sure I'm not sure what, what their identity is that's, oh, that's I, you're overthinking it mate the miracle equals good thrash <laughs> job done move on <laughs> and we're into side two um, which kicks off with uh, an instrumental and almost an instrumental um, this is Surf and Slam, where the only lyrics are Surf and Slam. So if so if this is if this is an instrumental, this is about as good as an instrumental as you will ever find anywhere. It kind of isn't, but that's where I am with this. Um but what I found really interesting about this is that when they get past the original, the first bit of Surf and Slam, we've then got the Apache by the Shadows fused with anything you like by Metallica. I love it. This is this is basically a vehicle for Rocky George, isn't it? For his solo, it's just it's just adding context to a solo for me, which is a bit like Steve Vai. Yeah, this is a bit more primitive than that. I would suggest. Yes, 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 yeah, definitely. But mm-hmm. I love this. I really like this a lot. And uh, I, we, I don't know if we mentioned much about Herrera's drums. Um, there are some. Yeah, it's, uh, I like his drumming. I like his ride cymbal work. Don't go to sleep, boys. So, yeah, it's um, in particular on this track, really, the drumming really pushes it along. Right. So this is, uh, well, this is 1988, so therefore it's the 80s. So therefore you have to do Black Sabbath somewhere down the line because it's in every metal band's contracts. Um, and so here it is. This is If I Don't Wake Up. See, I'm not sure how many bands we've mentioned now. <laughs> <laughs> but I've now got I've now got Anthrax. I know we've mentioned Anthrax, but I've now got Anthrax. And 
I've, I know we've also mentioned Testament because I'm now really cheesed off with the riff that's coming. Why? Because you just know it's coming. Yeah, I think so. There's, I, I, I find it quite predictable now. And, you know, Testament did it as well, which you rightly called them out on when we did that episode, Steve. And I, you know, I lay the same charge at the at suicidal tendencies door. It's, it's like, we're going to do a fast riff now. It's, it's not very much different to the first one we did or the second one or, or actually the third one. Here we go. Yeah, but then I've heard it. But you're 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 right, of course. But they're saving graces because they split the tracks up so much. That there's there's kind of lots of other things going on as well, either side yeah, I mean, or or between the yeah, riffs. But yeah. I get your point. Yeah. yeah. Whereas Testament just did it in every song. Yeah. yeah. Inc- incidentally, the album this could slot onto seamlessly is uh, "Pleasures of the Flesh" by Exodus. Bang, straight yeah. in there. Of all of this reuse of a riff, this is the version uh, I, I like. I really like this song. I think yeah. it's got a, it's got a fantastic uh, you know, beat that really charges along at a great rate. Um, I must say there are a few, quite a few songs, including this one. As I was listening through this album, I thought, "Yeah, that's so Steve." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the same thing. Yeah. It's just exactly the same thing. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a it's a great song. Tough, hard listen lyrically. This is suicidal doing suicide, but um, that aside, it's um, musically um, top draw, top draw. Um, midpoint of of uh, side two is sorry, and the next band to be added to the mix is, and you're probably not going to get it orig- initially, is Hanoi Rocks. Um, because we're now down to their, we're now down to their rat-a-tat punk pace, <laughs> and this sounds like the rocks, old school rocks. No, I get that actually. I mean, I've written down here punk roots coming through, so yeah, I completely get that. It's but it, a bit like Hanoi Rocks, I suppose. It's it's different enough to be really interesting, and and you don't get bored because there's always something to wait for. Yeah, I mean, this is this is my low point. It's all a bit yeah to me. It's all a bit. Um, this is what they were like in their early days, and I just prefer the other stuff. If I'm honest, it's okay. It's okay. Okay, so after sorry, um, in my view, we need a really strong finish, and we do get it. Um, but first, we've got to listen to one too many times, which is, you know, just a bit predictable almost redeemed by one of um, Rocky's finest guitar moments. Um, and, and as I say, I, I won't tire from repeating it. Whenever he flexes his fingers, they go up a notch. Um, yeah, this is all right. No, you're wrong. This is great. Ah, I could, I could sell by the puzzled look on your face. This is great. It's got a really nice light touch. It, it reminds me a lot of the best of Disney, Disneyland After Dark. And just to make sure the hits keep on coming, it it also reminds me of Warfare's Hammer Horror, Hammer, Hammer Horror Opera, because it's quite operatic. Yeah. Okay. Now it's my second favourite track on the album. All right. Yeah. 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 Well, that's entirely up to you, Rich. Yeah, we're, we're pretty mixed up, aren't we, on these tracks? This, um, yeah, this just doesn't do it for me. <laughs> This is the one where, for me, his voice is 
uh, ruins it. it. It just sounds like he's singing along. I could sing along to this song better. And then, and then it, I find it just turns into a dirge at the end. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, I, of all of the tracks, I, I just yeah, didn't really get that, this one. Luckily, we we don't have to you know endure one too many times for any longer than however long it lasts. Um, and then we're into the feelings back, which is just a beast. You know, kicks off like a straightaway piece of uh, mid eighties metal, um, and the pace picks up. The negative, again, is that Mike Muir isn't, isn't just singing badly. He's actually singing the same song he sung two or three times earlier in the album. Um, but if you take that out, take the sung verses out, um, it's electric. It's electric. It's got everything you want or I want in, um, in, a, in a thrash track. Power, pace, key changes. Oh, God, I just felt like listening to his bloody voice now. Um. I'll, I'll tell you something. It's not just the feeling that's back. It's that fucking riff. <laughs> I've written that riff again. Yawn. More Exodus. Yawn. All very average. Yawn. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, Rich, Rich, take me away from him. I, I think, it, yeah, it's... It brings the second side back after the yeah. previous track for me. Yes, um, it's a good finish, good big finish. Uh, like the riff, when he, he's singing, um, sort of when it, when he's really you know, chatting along, it it remind it reminds me of a song. I just can't think what it is. Um, it's not. Don't worry, don't worry. Just just keep eulogising. That's fine. Uh, but yeah, I, big finish. I like this one. And a great solo to bring it home. Oh, it's a great song. In fact, it's getting better as I'm listening to it again. Right, but but enough of me. What about your highs and lows? Uh, so I'll start. Um, so my low is the title track, uh, How Will I Laugh? And my high, uh, which is going to be, I think, at odds with you guys, is uh, Hearing Voices. Mm-hmm. Uh, the low for me is one too many times. Um, and there's a few um, around the top. I mean, I absolutely love Trip of the Brain, a really good way of, of opening the album. And if I don't wake up, so then they're, t- they're at the top one. Yeah, no, <clears throat> Sorry is the one um, that I've put lowest. And like you, Rich, I've got several up there in the high eights. And... I'll always, I'll all, as soon as I put this on and listen to Trip of the Brain, I'm in a happy, happy place. And so, yeah, that takes it for me. So that's two albums down, um, which leaves one to go on our For Those About to Shock, We Salute You episode. Um, and the third one, we're moving, we're jumping another decade into the 90s and crossing into mainland Europe for the beast that is Ramstein and their debut album, Herzlide and uh, Mark. Come on, tell me what they did so bad. Opening album sleeve notes. Right, so yes, this is Herzlite, which translates as heartache from East Germany's finest Rammstein, released in September twenty uh, September 1995, 25th of September. And this is, ladies and gentlemen, the one and only time that we will be discussing a Rammstein release on the pod because our rules say it's only 1970 
1995. This was their debut album recorded between 1994 and 1995 and released on the Motor Music uh, label, which at the time was an independent label, later became a subsidiary of Universal Music, is now back in independent hands. The album itself runs to 49.28, sorry, 49 minutes and 28 seconds, produced by a guy called Jakob Hellner, or Jacob Hellner, depending on how where you are in the world and wherever he came from, uh, recorded at Polar Studios, which also has the claim to fame of having been the recording studio used for the final three ABBA albums, Super Trooper, Voulez-Vous and The Visitors, as well as Led Zeppelin's In Through the Outdoor and Genesis's Duke. So a fairly eclectic mix of um, recording artists, and they weren't obviously the only ones to record there. The personnel at this time is the same as the personnel for uh, ever since, actually, till Lindemann on vocals, Richard Crisper on guitar, Paul Landers on guitar, Christian Lorenz on keyboards, and my word, he has an impact. Uh, Oh, God, I'm getting loads of feedback. Um, Oliver Riedel on bass, Christoph Schneider on drums. It didn't chart in the UK or in the United States of America, but did really well in mainland Europe, as you probably would expect from a German band, made number six in Germany. Top 20 in both Austria and Switzerland and the top 40 in Belgium racked up one and a half million sales, the majority, vast majority of which were achieved in Europe. The band itself was quite old, relatively speaking, when they recorded this till Lindemann was 32. The rest of the band were between 29 and 31 uh, with the baby of the group, bassist Oliver Riedel, just 24. Um, so the album, well, it was released obviously on uh, CD. If you've got it on uh, vinyl, I, I have absolutely no idea how these break up, but it's 11 tracks. Vodir das Betten Flammenzehen, Do You Want to See the Bed in Flames, uh, is the first one, followed by Der Meister, Weißes Fleisch, Asche zu Asche, Zeman, Zurich so gut, das alte Leid. Um, eighth track is Hayata Mich, Herzelite, the uh, title track, uh, ninth track on the album. And then uh, finishes off with Leichzeit, Spawning Time or Breeding Time, and Rammstein, which was the first track uh, to be written for the album. So there you go, 11 tracks, 49 and a half minutes long. Um, uh, where do you put Rammstein? in the sort of, if you're going to categorise them, I know, Steve, you hate you hate categorising bands, but if you're going to have to categorise them, where do they go? Because I've seen them described as industrial metal. I've seen them described as industrial electronica. They are credited as being part of the Neue Deutsche Heart Metal movement, which I suppose is the German equivalent of Nuobum. Um I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they're completely unique. I don't think I've ever heard anything quite like Rammstein in the last 25 years, apart from the eight albums that they released. Um, what about you two? Where, where where do they fit, boys? Where do they fit? Yeah, in a bucket of one, there is nothing like them. Yeah, the first time you played the first track, <laughs> uh, and it still blows my mind. I mean, they, they really are. They're, they're just amazing and, uh, and yeah, one of a kind. Yeah, I tried. To, I tried to think of a genre, and I just created my own, which was um, thunderously loud gothic dance cabaret electronic industrial. Um, and I think that's 
you know, <laughs> within there somewhere lies this utterly unique beast of a band. Um, and I remember the first time I saw them, and it wasn't um, Herzl I, it was Mutter. Um, I came to it belatedly, um, having got Kerrang TV a couple of months earlier, and I saw um, and I saw them perform Sonna, um, the slightly ever so unsettling Sonna on um, on video. And I was absolutely, I've never heard, going through this period in the 90s where we were, getting hit by an old school riff like that, that was beyond, it was just an absolute throwback, but with so many modern twists and tweaks. And it was just astonishing. And I just thought they were all actors. I thought, well, that's not the band. And then you look <laughs> at them and fuck me, that's the band. I mean, just how how manic do you want the whole thing to be? But, okay, so I've got a big question. Well, I'm going to ask the question. You can both tell me. The video to Zona. How often did you hit rewind? <laughs> it wasn't the sort of thing that was on MTV at the time, was it? There's, there's no, no two really? ways about that. Yeah. No, yeah. it wasn't. And, and of course, they did many of them as well. You think about the videos for sort of Mind Tile or, or Pussy. Fucking hell, the song yeah. Pussy. I mean, you don't need the video, do you? You've got a fair idea of what it's going to be about. And the whole thing's just, you know... That's why I was going to ask you about the incident that this is supposed to be, you know, for those about to shock, you know, the incident that you've chosen to demonstrate that Ramstein is some way shocking. You've got, a, I mean, what do you want? The, the sort of, you know, they've been accused of being Nazis, pin-up boys for the master race, um, Holocaust deniers, racist. They've had it all chucked at them and more. Fuck me. The band name itself, they're named after a, a, an air tragedy hasn't happened a million years back it's still raw in the memories of um of many this band is courted controversy every step of the way but you didn't yeah, choose, I mean, choose for that incident though did you any of that it's not it's not difficult to find controversy around Ramstein, is it let's be honest so the, the incident that i mean the particular incident linked to this album was so you've got a band you know that they're, they're as i say they're they're not young kids they are relatively mature musicians who've come to fame late you think so they're going out on the road to support this album i don't know if i'm 32 and i've had this late chance of fame and fortune i'm thinking let's play it safe lads let's 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 get through the tour and secure a second album right no, 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 no. That's not what Ramstein do. They go out to America on their debut US tour and they start performing simulated acts of sodomy and God knows what else on stage and end up being thrown in jail. Now, I suppose on one level, if you're a PR guru, you're probably thinking, well, you know what? There you go. No publicity, no publicity is bad publicity. Um, but my God, I mean, they push the envelope on everything they do, don't they? Because I love this album, but it is so wrong on so many levels and so dark and so disturbing. And you kind of think, how have they managed to get... I mean, the, the, this album, this album was banned from record shops across Europe. I mean, it became an underground hit. The reason it only sold one and a half million copies was it wasn't freely available because the, the, everybody was so outraged by the content, by some of the um, by some of the imagery on the on on the sleeve, and yeah, you know, if you're really really lucky, you've got a copy of the album that has um, uh, a free giveaway voucher 
um, that was pinned to the inside of the sleeve, but only a handful of copies were ever made. But anyway, um, yeah, just just talk about taking taking your balls in your hand and just going with the flow. My God. And it wasn't, oh and it God. wasn't the case of. It certainly wasn't the case of one spit and twice shy either. You think about the cover from Mutter, which I think was the third album. It's a dead fetus, isn't it? I think you know on yep. the picture on the cover of that. Zane Sirk's those band left, right, and centre. They, they they didn't shy away from, as you say, you know, all publicity is good publicity, isn't it? So um, yep. I guess that, that that's the kind of you know the uh, the metier they use, and it's you know, Jesus, it's paid off because they're massive. I mean, they are a massive band now, absolutely massive. I mean, they are the probably the one band. Yeah, there are lots of bands I would have, I never saw, who I will never get to see because they just, you know, they're, they're dead and gone. You know that Ramstein are the one remaining band on my live bucket list, and you know, but I feel really uncomfortable enjoying their music, and it's it's I've, yeah, it's a real. I feel really conflicted by it, but I can't help myself. I just adore it. I think it's just brilliant. It is. It is. So uh, the first track is Voltaire uh, das Bett in Flamenzeen. Uh, do you want to see the bed in flames? Um, I mean, this is a hell of a calling card, isn't it? I just... <laughs> Everything that Ramstein is or ever will be is right here on this track. It is absolutely fucking awesome. <laughs> define your career by the first track of your first album and they, they've ticked that box it is spectacularly dark and beastly and um yeah it's the it's the the mother of all riffs that almost a signature riff for them from now on for the next sort of two and a half decades um but with, with that military drum crescendo and you talked about the keyboard there's so much fascinating synth and keyboard work in this track and this album and this band full stop. Um, and then of course you, you topped off by that incredible Till Lindemann voice that we'll get to and talk about forthwith. Cause it's, um, that's unique as well. Everything about this band's unique. As I always am with this track, I'm speechless. There aren't many pieces of music <laughs> that do that to you. It's very hard to talk whilst listening to it. It is, isn't it? Lie on a bed and be very passive. But yeah, I completely agree. It's the this defines them. That 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 combination of you know, I mean, dancing. You shouldn't be able to dance to this stuff. But that the 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 beats in this, um, the, the the grooves, the the additional sound effects that again add to the the darkness and the the spectre of it all. Oh, it's just brilliant. It's just, it's just relentless, isn't it? It just doesn't quit. And the thing about Rammstein as well is two things, really. One is how many bands, you know, internationally successful bands, can you think of who sing in a language other than English? Mm. Um, and that... The other thing that this band are absolutely brilliant at is when they just stop and they just and they go into something really kind of twiddly and you know just effervescent and then but that just all that does is that you're building up and building up and building up and you know what's coming 
you know what's going to come at the end of all of that, and it's just going to crash straight back into that nut-crunching riff. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and then and that this break in the middle of a song where you get the reloading shotgun. But it's more than just um, not any old German singer singing in German could make this what it is. It it has to be it, it, this voice again defines the band as much as anything else, doesn't it? Because it is yeah. so astonishingly different. Um, very difficult to describe. I mean, people who hear it know what it is. Yeah, singing German, singing this in German by itself isn't enough. Singing it like Till Lindemann sings it just takes it to an to an almost preposterous level. Yeah. <laughs> well, we talk a lot about singers um, being at the top end of their range. <laughs> Here's an exact opposite. <laughs> this is someone who is down in his bowels. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, that the, obviously, you know, you know, German is a very percussive language. And the reason the language and his voice suits this is it does become another instrument. Uh, it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's punchy and heavy. And again, it's part of the uniqueness. Just an astonishing way to start your career. So, Voltaire uh, das Bet uh, is followed by Der Meister. And I don't know, and they're just thinking, wow, oh, let's just start with some brutal drums, brutal guitars. And then we'll, we'll, we'll just underpin all of that with some curiously melodic synth harmonies. Bizarrely fabulous. Yeah, you don't get a, you don't get a sense of quite what an astonishing track this is going to be from the first kind of, you know, minute or so, which is just, just a, a beautiful beast of a riff. It's just, it's just so monstrous. You you don't imagine anything else is going to come. And then, as you say, at the, the back end of this thing, it gets, you know, you got your usual Lindemann chat, and I just, you know, punctuating this massive riff. And then, the, then you get all that twiddly keyboard stuff. And then the last minute or so, it suddenly goes off in a kind of, um, it, it goes off almost new romantic. You know, that kind mm -hmm. of crazy keyboard section. It's like OMD with the most ginormous bollocks. You've got huge elements of dance in it, isn't it? I mean, you can imagine you don't imagine people b bouncing to this rather than head banging. I mean, this this is a a great big sweaty uh, Hamburg nightclub with just everybody bouncing, and I'd love to visit it. <laughs> yeah, I can hear Ultravox in this. I mean, it's just 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 bonkers. It's absolutely bonkers. Um, and then you get a bit of the human league, which is where the new romantic stuff comes in. Isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it extraordinary the lengths and the and the depths that Def Leppard plumb trying to make some sort of dance rock in the shape in the shape of Excitable? When you compare Excitable to Dare Meister, I mean, you know, absolutely poles apart. And they're both supposed to be, you know, they're both supposed to have that sort of dance hall feel to them, you know. This is off the planet compared to anything they chucked out, or any other band, to be fair. I'm not picking on Def Leppard, but they made a point with Excitable, didn't they? You know, it's supposed yeah. to be a song you can dance to. Um, yeah, right. So if you, you felt you were just in for a little bit, sort of a respite, and just catch your breath and, you know, just get yourself ready, no let-up, no let-up at all, just, just makes me grin. So Christian Lorenz is kind of, he's like some sort of mad professor, isn't he? On, on those keyboards. Crit absolutely critical to the success of this. And also his keyboards, they're very rarely cheery. 
it's just the, the tone of it is perfect. I mean, it's just mood music, isn't it? The whole thing's mood music, and he captured it magnificently. But the thing is, the thing about Ramstein's, they never let your attention wander, do they? There's always something going on, something to listen to. And then the, on this track, this track particularly, two minutes, 17 seconds in, it just explodes into yeah. something else. Yeah. The other band, obviously, that are German, singing German, and are, you know, globally regarded and unique are Kraftwerk. Vices Fleisch starts off almost a bit like Kraftwerk, but it only lasts about about 20 seconds. I mean, it's, yeah, you just, I mean, it just blows your head off this track, doesn't it? Um, I'd, uh, this, this is the first time where I've been in the house listening to an album in preparation for a sad night, and both my kids have simultaneously burst in the door and said, Dad, what are you listening to? They obviously, had, they obviously hadn't picked up on the subject matter. This is where we first. This is our first moment of, uh, yeah, quest, questionable topics that um, <laughs> two, of the boys, two of the boys turn to. Yeah, this is all about rape, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But apparently, he had a he had a rape victim. Apparently, contact him and said, "Thank you for, you know, talking about a subject that no one talks about in music." And you kind of figure, you know, why. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, it's not gonna get, oh, now that's what I call music, is it? A song about rape. But they, they, you know, they they took a punt as they and they take a punt subject matter wise. They take a punt in so much, don't they? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, in the lyric, there's they, they, there's a word called sh shafot, which is I mean translated as scaffold. Um, you know, was it? I'm, I'm den weisses Fleisch wird mein shaf shafot. Your, your white flesh becomes my scaffold, but the, the the translation isn't completely accurate because shafot is a very certain type of scaffold on which condemned prisoners are executed. So it's a gallows scaffold, basically. Yeah. So um, track four is Asher to Asher, which is is uh, the other thing that I was going to say about this album is that. There is very little difference between music in terms of musical accomplishment and sound. Very little difference between this and Mutter. You know, they, they it's almost like they start their careers at this super elevated level um, of ability and and kind of everything's rounded out already. Because Asher to Asher reminds me quite a lot of any number of tracks from Mutter and you know, albums that followed it, Rose and Rose and um, mm -hmm. even um, Libra Israel Star. Um, it's just, again, it's just that fusion of what the, I suppose, what the Germans call dance metal, dance metal, and those blistering, brutal, bludgeoning riffs that just underpin everything they do. And also off, offsetting that, or within it, the, the, some of the subtlety of the keyboards in in the background just doing little little scales up and scales down and then i mean eventually the, the, the keyboard work becomes a bit more full frontal before some incredibly groovy bass playing as well and it's what you were saying about all the different elements that um you know it seems incredibly rudimentary musically but it's anything but you know it, it's because the, the noise is so colossal and the beat so 
um, persuasive, but there's, there's so much going on. What's so clever about the production in, in this album is you've got the kitchen sink being thrown at you sonically with the guitars and the vocals and the, the drums, and you're still able to pick out these little, at times quite delicate, uh, keyboard uh, riffs. Um, and, and and so, it, it's, yeah, the way it's presented is is brilliant. Really good production. Yes, I mean, you can hear everything that's going on, can't you? And particularly in track five, which is Zayman, which translates as sailor, effectively, um, where they wind it right back and it becomes almost, I mean, it's almost acoustic and piano. It's um, just as a counterpoint to everything else that goes on in the, in the album, it's just like, well, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it, it's counterpoint for a while. I mean, it it it, 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 this shows how, I mean, how well he can actually sing. That no matter how many times this I've listened to this song you know, b- before this last uh, week or two, you know, in a long, long before that, um, this song, this song still makes me jump out of my chair when the guitars come in because this start just lulls me into a false sense of security. And I start listening to it, and I forget. And then, and they've got this lovely melodic bass line going on, and the and those little sort of bird sounds from the keyboards. And I'm thinking, oh, this is nice. And then I I, I jump out my bloody skin when they get up. Steve, you were shaking your head and kind of laughing. I wasn't sure whether it was a because one of us had talked bollocks, or you were just in awe of what was going on musically. No, 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 no. Two things. A, you both talk bollocks, and B, I'm delighted with what's going on musically. But um, no, I remember the first time I heard this, it was my first opportunity to be seriously unnerved by Till Lindemann's voice when he he tries to bring it back and and sings. Um, And I just found his voice sounded even more sinister and even more pervy. And I just thought it was like, um, it's like your favourite uncle coming to see you, to sing you to sleep the night before he goes off to do a 25-year stretch for child abuse or something. You know what I mean? It's it's that kind of voice. You think, I don't want him in my room. <laughs> but anyway, and the song's about a storm coming. I guess there's plenty more metaphors in there, I don't know. Live, incidentally, apparently they send a boat out, don't they, into the crowd? Yes. A fucking rubber boat. <laughs> Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to what is my second favourite song on the album. Uh, so good, which is you smell so good. <laughs> I, I, it's a, it's a, the lyrics are predatory, wrapped up in this kind of Ibiza stuff, <laughs> rave that then just has the most catchy, I mean seriously catchy chorus. Um, and this is this is just everything about Ramstein that goes. Yeah, I know what you think this is going to be, but it really, really isn't. It's an astonishing song. The chorus is to absolutely die for. Yeah, I, 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 I said it was like the Eurythmics meets Slayer in a car workshop. Oh, what else can I add? It's so danceable. Yeah, and again, so this one, no. Key, the keyboards taking the leads through the verses, keyboards and drums really driving it. I mean, again, solid bass line underneath, as there is through the whole album. And then the guitars, 
creating these quite unnerving sounds through the verses. And then, of course, through the chorus, the, the guitars kick in and beat you around the head again. Hello, hello. Uh, das Alter Light, the old suffering, uh, loosely translated as. That what I love about this song, right, is for quite a long part of it, there are no synths, or at least no obvious keyboards. And it's almost like they've said to Christoph Lorenz, uh, listen, mate, we're just going to do one song without any synthesizers or any keyboards. So if you just wait outside, okay, we're just going to go and record the song. Just hold it there. We'll call you in when we're ready. And it gets about two minutes in. <laughs> and it's almost like Lorenz bursts through with his keyboards. <laughs> and it's the most random keyboard. Yeah contribution i've ever heard in my life it's all over the shop don't know what's going on with it but that's not that's not the only random thing about this song and that that is not chilling chilling is bringing a baby in at the end to do the crying i mean that's that's chilling i mean and they're <laughs> shouting so you've got a baby anyone doesn't know this and they've got a baby crying at the end and this sprog's not shutting up and they're shouting at it nimer nimer no more no more and that and this is bothering me enormously. And I, and I mean and I mean, which member of the band thinks, I tell you what, let's bring in a crying baby and use it as a prop. Like people don't think we're weird enough as it is, do they? I mean, it's just nuts. It's quite, quite odd. Well, more than quite. With the keyboards, they they, they I think the they play a very different part in this song, and in, in, in through the verses, there's, there's this orchestral undertone that, uh, that I'm presuming he's, he's creating on on the keyboards. Which is, I mean, the really really big sort of you know string soundscape. Well, if we thought everything that had gone be before was disturbing, Haratimich uh, is uh, I've written down here another really dancey keyboard riff across a brilliantly brutal guitar wall of sound, dot, 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 a shame it's about necrophilia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a bloody great song about digging a woman out of her grave, kissing her and asking her to marry you. Come on, kids, everyone onto the floor now. This one's about necrophilia. Come on, then. <laughs> I, notes I've got for this song are funeral mass to Giorgio Moroder to amazing because again the 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 start is just so weird and then uh, beautifully dancey and melodic and then the the same old yeah cracking guitars kicking. Uh, I, I love it. I shouldn't love it, but I absolutely love it. I think it's such a good song. I just I, I I spend the entire album wondering how on earth it was ever released anywhere in the world in 1995. Mm. Or maybe it's because it was. You know, it wouldn't be released now, or it might be released. I don't think it'd do very well. Now. No. So Harata uh, Mich gives way to the title track. That's a light, um, a little bit more uplifting, I suppose. There's a, only one verse, which broadly translated, uh, reads as follows. Um, Save each other from the heartache, for the time you're together is short. 
And even when you are one for many years, one day it will seem like minutes to you. In other words, make the most of it, kids, because it doesn't last for very long, and then you're pushing up the daisies. But, you know, as messages go, that's not a bad message for life, is it? This is... Um, I, I, it's almost impossible to describe this track to anyone. It's an astonishing cocktail of, of, of madness. It's as close to madness as we've got. Yeah, I think for, for that reason, I... I don't warm to it as much warm warm to it <laughs> warm to it as much as the rest of the album yeah uh, I'm, with you. I'm with you on that rich yeah i don't know um it's <laughs> it's not this, it's not this at all but it but it's a bit more one dimensional <laughs> it was probably it's only three dimensional whether where the rest of the album is about eight dimensions less complicated more straightforward for ramstein i think um Still great. So penultimate track, track 10 is like Zeit, translated as breeding or spawning season. Suffice to say, um, this is about expanding the human race, though not necessarily in a legal or particularly desirable manner. Let's just say they're keeping it in the family. Yeah. And I recommend anyone who doesn't know what this is about just sticks this through Google Translate because it is absolutely hilarious. Utterly brilliant. I don't even know. Just crazy. Hell of a song, incidentally. This is the one that, um, when I first got this album and I was going up and down to London quite a lot on CD in my little portable player, I'd, I'd reach this and just keep hitting repeat. You know, I, I loved the whole lot, but this was the one for me. This was, this was, this absolutely just hit me between, squarely between the eyes. It's a phenomenal piece of work. Um, and right up there, um, with any of the anthems they've done it because it, it's another one of those trademark choruses the one word spat out over and over against a synth they do like a one word or a two word spit with the chorus um that almighty backbeat i just think it's an, i just think it's a brilliant song the, yeah it's just the riff picks you up just goes nope not letting you down for a little while yet and the critical impact of, the, of the, those that light touch keyboard, it seems light touch. So often it's just absolutely spot on, just adding an extra layer or tone to, to this stuff. So Life Sight um, gives way to the final track on the album, which uh, curiously was the first track to be written for the album by Rammstein. Um, and it's it's the name of the band. It is Rammstein. Um uh, I haven't got a lot to say about it, actually. It's not a favourite of mine. I think it's a bit mm -hmm. slow, a bit ponderous and a bit boring. Um, but it's, you know, that's by comparison to everything that's gone before. I think you put it next to some other stuff that we've listened to over the last six months and it probably stand up pretty well. Yeah, it's quite. It's, it's a, I find it a really interesting choice of closer. I mean, it's an obvious opener. I mean, except for the fact that, you know, we've had probably the best opener in in modern rock in uh, Voltaire das Betten Flamenzen, but th this would be an opener by by any other measure, wouldn't it? Surely. Um, yeah. I, it's 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 oppressively heavy, and and they've been heavy. This now this takes it to a new depth. Really, it just it just absolutely just batters you down. Um, pretty one paced, and as I say, it's about the <laughs> and it's about an air show tragedy of 1988. 
So yes, cheery subject matter. Very, yeah. So there you go. That is uh, Ramstein's debut album, Hertz Light. Um, gents, we need some highs and lows. Steve. Um, okay, so the low for me is uh, Seaman, if that's how you pronounce it. Actually, I thought your your pronunciation was impeccable at the start of this, Mark. Obviously, that um, that exchange trip to Berlin, age twelve or whenever you went, has uh, stood you in good stead. And th- th- yeah, always for me, always, always till the day I die, like Zeit, sensational song. As I said earlier, it just doesn't stir me as much as some of the others. Is so the the Tardra and. Just an amazing first track off a first album, and I still love it to death, no matter how many times I hear it. So I, I'm with you on the high there, Richard. I, pushed very, very close by Dooley Silkwood. Um, but yeah, Vodir Daspet in Flamenzen definitely would be my high. And my, my low, funnily enough, is um, Das Alte Light. But when we talk about lows with Ramstein, I can, no spoiler alerts here, but. Um, this has scored very highly, very, very, very highly for me. Um, talking of scores, of course, um, that is the next task that we have, is to go in and actually give all of these tracks a score and see where each of those albums ends up in the Hall of Fame. So let's go and do that now. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Okay, so let's... Go over the scores, starting with the first album of the episode, which was Judas Priest's Stained Class. And we were reasonably close uh, on these. Uh, Steve gave it just under 7, uh, 6.94. And Mark and I were very similar. Yeah, Mark giving it a 7.42, and I gave it a 7.44. And that gave the album an overall a total of 7.27. Steve, suicidal tendencies. Mm, and the uh, the mouthful that is, how will I laugh tomorrow when I can't even smile today? Their third album from 1988. Um, yeah, similar, really. Yeah, you scored it 6.7. I scored it 7.25. Mark topped the shot by a fraction 7.31. Um, for an overall score, slightly lower than staying class, but as we always say, it's not a competition. Um, 7.09. Mark? Yeah, so the final album, as you've just heard, was um, Ramstein's debut, Hertz Alight, from 1995, uh, the only Ramstein album that will feature in this podcast. So if you're a big Ramstein fan, thanks very much. Good to have you, and we'll see you soon. Well, let's start in reverse order. Steve, um, you gave it a 7.4. Uh, Richard, you gave it a 7.7, near as damn it. And I gave it um, a fairly predictable and unre- unremarkable in terms of how you probably expected me to score it. Gave it an 8.8 or 8.78 if we're being uh, absolutely right. Um, giving it an overall average album score of 7.95758. So time to head over to the Hall of Fame and see where those scores have landed these albums in the big list. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. Okay, so we've reviewed them, we've scored them, and now we have ranked them. Um, And we have 84 albums so far in our Hall of Fame, with these three from this episode to add into it. And they are in reverse order. How Will I Laugh Tomorrow When I Can't Even Smell Today by the Suicidal Tendencies um, has made it in at 65 with a score of 7.09. 
just a few places above it in 60th, stained glass with Judas Priest um, with 7.27. And Hertz Alive with Mark's Seaman all over it has um, shot up to 19th spot um, with 7.95758 carried there almost single-handedly by my good friend Mark, who has eulogized over that with one of his highest scores, I would suggest, um, of the um, podcast so far. Yes, yes. It's not as high as I wanted it to be, but yes. It, it won't stay there. I don't think I don't think it will stay in the top 20, but um, I think that's, yeah, they're, they're a pretty important band, aren't they? And, um, and that was a pretty remarkable debut album, at least, up, you know, I think so. And, you know, I kind of expected it, based on the conversation we've just had, I kind of expected it to be scoring above eight. Just shows you, doesn't it? Just shows you it's really tough to break the eight barrier. In fact, out of those 84 albums in that list now, only 16 have got above an eight or eight or above. So it shows you how tough the competition is. So there we go. Um, another episode of the Enter Sad Men podcast done and dusted for another week. Uh, we'll be back soon with episode 29. Um, but until then, have a good week. Thank you for joining us. We've enjoyed your company. Hope you enjoyed the podcast as much as we did. And we'll be back next time with another three albums. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service. (laughs) 